everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we're joined by Billy Simons, co-founder and chief of staff for Daylight. Billy, welcome. And congrats thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. And we need to thank our mutual friend, Mary, for connecting us. So thank you, Mary. Yes, thank you, Mary. <laughs> um, so before we start, Billy, can you tell us a little bit about the company, how it's been going since launch, and what have you been busy with? Yeah, mostly um, customer support is, uh, has been taking up most of my time uh, the past couple of weeks. Um, we had our rebranding launch in uh, November and then started onboarding customers uh, at the end of December. And so it has been um, a really fun journey um, going from kind of idea sort of uh, in Q2 of 2020 all the way to, to having physical cards in the market and having onboarded uh, customers. But uh, we're a very small team, we're very scrappy. And so, yeah, I've been uh, I've been doing a lot of the customer support and technical support um, over the past couple of weeks, which has been a lot of fun and has been um, really amazing to talk directly to our members and to, um, to hear their stories and to hear their excitement um, is incredibly rewarding. So I know we're going to get to it in a little bit as well, but um, literally from concept to launch, if I remember, all of that mm -hmm. through and through, it's less than a year, right? Yes. <laughs> that That is pretty amazing for, you know, what what, what you have been able to accomplish. Um, how can how can our listeners find out more about Daylight and what you guys do? Uh, so our website is joindaylight.com. Um, most of our socials are also join daylight or um, join daylight money. Uh, we're on all of them. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and uh, we're, you know, we're tweeting and we're, we're kind of, uh, we're out there on various uh, podcasts like this amazing podcast, uh, spreading the word. Um, and we're also in basically every LGBT Slack affinity group as well. So if you see us in one of those, feel free to say hi as well. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we we all know that there needs to be an awful lot more uh, diversity within financial services, and I think there's there's an awful lot more that needs to change. And when you when you look at a group um, like supporting LGBTQ um, and and the different needs, different financial needs that I think most banks just kind of don't get, how do we start doing that? How does what you're doing at Daylight, you know, sort of give a model for ways to serve other groups that are really sort of disenfranchised or less served? I think it starts with your hiring practices in-house um, and making sure that members of the community that you're trying to serve are not only within your workforce, but supported, empowered, and in dis positions of uh, decision-making. Um, I think it is, it is fairly clear to me when people launch products aimed at the LGBT community, um, if there are not members of that community in positions of power um, within those companies. And um, because no one can build better for, you know, for a problem that they themselves have experienced. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really about not only having people in the company, but making sure that they are the people that are, you know, calling the shots. Um, and I think that kind of brings up a wider kind of conversation around diversity and, you know, the higher up, um, any kind of ladder of power within a company you go, the less diversity that you see. Um, and I think that 
that's kind of the next frontier. We've kind of realized that we can kind of solve our pipeline problems uh, in various ways with diversity, but how do we make sure that there is diversity at the uh, at the C-suite, at the on the board, at every kind of level um, within the company? That part really resonates because um, I've spent a few years looking at the financial services market space for older adults, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have to have gone through, you know, having an a parent, have their, having an older loved one that has gone through different cycles and be better under, in a position to understand what it is that they need. What are we lacking in the market space that we are not addressing, right? You have to have gone through a little bit of that journey to not just have the empathy for it, but also mm-hmm. an understanding to build a better product. So I, I um, as we talked about before, um, you know, our podcast started, after I read your story on Bankrate, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is perfect. Um, and that's why, you know, we, we've been wanting to, to have you join us for the little chat. So in, in an interview that I read, you had said something that was really interesting, and I would say it's eye-opening. You said the LGBTQ is not a marketing segment. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean? Yes, the LGBT community um, should not be being treated as just a marketing segment. Um, maybe I'll, I'll correct my, my kind of previous quote of, you know, not just a marketing segment, but also... Um, you know, I think where companies have gone wrong in the past is um, they have treated the LGBT community like a monolith. And uh, we're an acronym for a reason. Um, actually, I believe we're an initialism, aren't we? Because we say each letter. But um, the, you know, there is an L, there is a B, there is a G, there is a T and a Q and an I and an A and a plus. And, you know, um, every single person in the LGBT community also has additional intersections that they sit on. Um, the experiences of a black trans woman is very different to the experiences of a, a white gay man. And I think recognizing that is really important and doesn't really happen very often. Um, and you can't begin to solve problems for the LGBT community if you treat them like a monolith. And <clears throat> I think beyond that as well, it's not just enough to market uh, to the LGBT community and treat us like an acquisition target. Um, It's very clear from all of our research and all of our conversations that um, LGBT consumers are very, very dissatisfied with the way that they have been treated, particularly by incumbents, uh, incumbent banks. Um, You know, in our own research, uh, the number is uh, 26% of LGBT millennials think that their bank is doing enough for the LGBT community. And, you know, I have this conversation um, with other members of the LGBT community every June. Um, I remember, I guess it was two years ago now, walking down Fifth Avenue in New York in the month of June and seeing every single store plastered in rainbows, like every single one. And it, almost to the point where it was laughable because I was like, there's no way that every single one of these companies <laughs> is an LGBT inclusive company. Um, but they know that they can get good kudos for appearing to support the LGBT community. 
Um, but what I want to know is what are they actually doing to make their LGBT employees' lives better? And what are they doing to make their LGBT customers' lives better? Um, and I think a really great example of this, not in the financial services space, um, I don't think there are very many good examples in the financial services space, which is why Daylight exists, but um, Sephora is the one that I always uh, point out. Um, I know recently they've had controversy, controversy with some of their other uh, employees, but in terms of engaging the LGBT community, they not only run pride campaigns, but they also year round run uh, trans inclusive makeup workshops. Um, they also, you know, employ a lot of LGBT people and make sure that they are empowered and promoted within the company. And I think that, you know, consumers in general these days are a lot more savvy. We have access to a lot more information than we have ever had before in history. And we're able to find out if companies are just placating us with rainbows and not actually doing anything meaningful. Yeah, growing up here in the San Francisco Bay Area and um, working in community financial institutions for 20 some odd years, you know, we, we worked um, inside the bank to try to better understand the tax implications and the partnership implications and the different types of things to sort of put traditional bank products into um, a better mix for more people that we were serving in the Bay Area. And when we think about traditional banking services, unless you're doing what you're doing in daylight and actually focusing on ensuring that everything that you need from soup to nuts and in terms of financial you know needs are being met from that perspective you you can never do so because you know a, a large bank will throw a body you know or maybe a couple people to like think about this within a marketing team to your point so so how do you how do you look at you know really serving the financial needs of this market more than just you know saying that you understand or showing empathy through that like to talk about what are your your thoughts on the products and the way that you you know enable different types of titling with people being married or not and how that works across states and all that fun stuff i mean what are the nuts and bolts of it you know the banking industry is is huge and old and i think a lot of them are starting to kind of catch on to this now but um i think a lot of them are very impeded by um, the structures that they have built around themselves. And, you know, I think really it starts with uh, changing your mental model about these things. <clears throat> so a really great example, um, when we were working with our partners to um, to launch the chosen name feature, which allows trans and non-binary people, or indeed anyone to put whatever name they want on their card, uh, it doesn't have to match their legal identity. Um, when we started, you know, talking with our partners at Visa about it, um, they were like, well, actually, we've never, we've never required anyone to have their legal name on a card. That's not part of compliance because the card is still, you know, attached to your account, which is attached to your social security, which is attached to your identity. Um, but because of, you know, decades of people's mental models and ideas about what are the right ways to, to run a bank and to, to meet compliance, um, people have always thought that you had to have a legal name on a card. And it's only until someone like us goes into to daylight, um, sorry, goes into Visa and says, hey, can we fix this problem for our community? Um, there was never actually a problem in the first place. <laughs> 
Um, and so, you know, and indeed when we've worked with other partners, their first question around this, this feature is, well, won't it be used for fraud? And that's immediately where they go. And again, the card is still attached to your legal identity. There's no, you know, this kind of feature doesn't actually prevent that from happening. And so it's clear to me that people's mental models are wrong for the ways in which um, we approach banking services. So I think it really starts, it's it's like a first principles thing, right? It's like, okay, why do we have this feature? Why, like, who is it serving? Who is it excluding? Does it need to be here? Um, another great example of, of the kind of reliance on, on names for in, in the banking industry is credit scores. Um, I have two credit scores because I have changed my legal name and gender. So I have a credit score that is before I transitioned and a credit score that I have now. Um, and those are separate. And there is no way for me to consolidate those credit scores, even though they're both attached to my social security number. Um, because who built the credit scoring systems in the first place? The one community in America that have never had to change their name. <laughs> Uh, straight white men. And, you know, it's, it's just very clear that, again, we're basing, we're building these systems based on our own experiences of the world. And, you know, the only way to actually change that is to bring more people in to, into building these systems and into working in these systems that have different life experiences. And that, again, starts with, you know, diversity and inclusion. Well, and, and, and when you think about that, just that simple thing, you know, there, this is like a call out to the compliance and regulatory folks that listen in here to this podcast. Um, I will say that, you know, the traditional bank will say, oh, you know, let's serve this community. We're going to call it rainbow checking. And we're going to like, you know, have a flashy this or a flashy that. And it's like, no, no, you have to understand that there are a lot of implications to what you just said. I mean, a credit score not being able to, to link to you, your past, your history, all of these things. And you know, that's, that's something that hopefully just by launching this and having success with this, you know, you're, you're marketing into and, and serving the needs of a community that has on your site $1 trillion in spending power. Well, absolutely, especially here in the Bay Area, right? So when I think about this, those awkward conversations of <clears throat> this is our need in Visa, can you do this? And they're like, oh, no one ever asked us about that. Well, that's why you're breaking through that barrier because you're asking those questions and you're ensuring that your needs of your community are met. So let's go back just a little bit then to the beginning. So a year plus ago, when you first had this idea and you first started building a team, you had this partnership that you started within this past year with Visa as part of their FinTech Fast Track program. And I'm assuming at some point you had some funding to be able to start this build. How were those conversations and, you know, talk about that program and what you learned from it? Yeah, um, you know, Visa have been, you know, to kind of add on to your point of, you know, we're, we're the, the reason we're making these changes is because we've been, we're asking these questions. It's not just that, it's also that we are empowered to ask these questions and we're empowered to receive an answer. Um, you know, the other way that you build great products for a community is to ask them what they want. And I'm sure if, any financial institution had spoken meaningfully to trans people about how they're not being served, the number one thing would be, it's really hard to change my name and legal identity on cards. Um, but yeah, uh, en enough about that. <laughs> um, our partnership with Visa has been amazing. They've been incredibly open to hearing 
other opinions and needs of our community and recognizing that, you know, they do a great job. They have a huge LGBT ERG within Visa um, and have a HRC score of 100 and, you know, all of these kind of good signals, but they've never put out a product specifically tailored to the LGBT community. And so they were really excited to partner with us. Um, we've received funding from them as well as, you know, being part of this FinTech Fast Track program, which has really accelerated our ability um, because Visa were basically like, okay, what do you need? What can we, how can we help extend your um, ability to build things and to launch things? And so, you know, everything from, um, to PR launches in November, all the way to, you know, having the chosen name on card to, uh, to being able to step in, um, and tap, tap the LGBT ERG for, um, support with content production. And, um, you know, they're, they're incredible um, partners just because they are very, very excited to work with us and very, very open, um, about the different ways, um, that we can work together. It's not just a traditional, you know, you use our card and, and, and pay us fees. It's, you know, what projects can we build? What things can we launch? Um, we're talking about research studies. We're talking about building custom products for KYC and credit scores. Um, there's some incredibly exciting conversations happening at the moment. And hopefully in a year's time, I'll have many more to much more to share. <laughs> I, I love everything that you just said. It's in, and for those who are listening, I hope you can sense the excitement coming out from Billy's voice. If not, I can definitely see it because we are on video right now. Um, and, and that excitement is contagious. So kudos um, to you on that. I, what you said earlier when you were talking with Brad and when you guys were talking about financial institutions, um, or the inability thereof to be able to cater to community needs, right? Apart from just PR campaign. Like we have seen in the last few months when we're talking about Black Lives Movement, all of a sudden everyone slap something black on their logo and say, we support them. But what does it mean beyond making your logo black, right? Mm -hmm. And since then we have seen companies saying, oh, you know, we're gonna drop a million here. We're going to drop a million here. We're gonna hire more diversely. First of all, you should have done that before the movement. And second of yep. all, million dollars in a bank? No, that, that's not a good, that's, that's crumbs, literally. I think that's what I, I heard from um, Arlen and others. They said, this is crumbs, this is nothing, right? It's a good start. Kudos to that. Transparency is a good start. Trying to start is a good start. You should have started five years ago, whatever. We are where we are right now. How would, if I were a financial institution, how would I begin to work with you guys and learn about the needs of the communities that you're surfing and how do we work together? Um, you know, I think I agree with you. Um, you know, the, the black community has been fed table scraps for a very, very, very long time um, and kind of are continuing to, to be fed uh, table scraps in that way. Um, throwing money at the problem is not necessarily uh, going to solve their problems. I, d I definitely think it helps. It's definitely part of it, right? Like uh, uh, black founders especially are in incredibly underfunded as our LGBT founders, um, as our women founders. And so, you know, all of these initiatives that I'm seeing that, that pop up, um, that kind of target and aim to support um, these, the, these different communities um, build companies 
What I'm seeing, though, is a really interesting dynamic that is happening, that is indicative or, I guess, reflective of larger societal biases. So um, I won't name names, but I was on a I was on a call um, with two founders um, talking in a kind of uh, fireside chat about how they both raised their Series A. And one was a uh, straight white man, one was a white woman. And both had very, very compelling products, both had a ton of traction. They weren't the same kinds of products, but same industry, pretty comparable. The, the man raised his Series A with no data, no traction. It was all done on hype and belief. And, you know, the woman responded to that and said, that was not my experience raising my Series A. I had to prove that this was working already. I had to show data. I had to have traction already. And, you know, I basically already had to be successful in order to receive my Series A. And we're seeing that too, as we've been going through, you know, fundraising. Um, we've had some amazing partners that are, you know, that, be that believe in us and believe in the potential of what we're doing. But we're definitely held to a very, very high standard. Um, you know, we're raising a pre-seed round right now. And, you're typically not asked for for traction for for pre-seed rounds. Um, it's you know it's largely a speculative raise, and it's largely about the potential of that company. We are being told that we need by a lot of VCs that we need to have onboarded customers, uh, revenue streams, you know, all of this. And I'm seeing a lot about you know oh we you know we're easy to reach VCs. We are um, you know we want to hear from underrepresented founders. But people are letting their biases uh, get in the way. They're, they're letting us get our foot in the door, but they're holding us to a significantly higher standard um, in order to actually receive funding. Um, and I think, I, I know this is slightly a tangent and not necessarily an answer to your question, but it's, you know, it, it's one of the ways in which um, that I think that all institutions can start working with underrepresented founders and companies um, and underrepresented communities is believe us and um, try and, you know, even if it's a case of pattern matching against previous deals or partnerships that you've done, um, think to yourself, hmm, did I, did I request these things the last time I funded, a, you know, a, a male-led uh, company? Um, because I, I would put money on it that, you know, <laughs> most of the time they have not held um, other people to these standards. And it's totally unconscious. You know, there's nothing uh, sort of intentional that's happening here, happening here. It's just that we inherently believe in the potential of white men a lot more than we do any other community. And that is reflective of, uh, you know, our society and history because we have empowered white men a lot more throughout uh, history. And so there are a lot of examples of brilliant male founders and there are not that many examples of other founders from other communities um but there's going to continue to be not examples of that unless you are letting us uh, be brilliant so i guess yeah that would be what i would say let us be brilliant i i think we should use that as the uh the <laughs> headline for the podcast right but that that Absolutely, I agree a hundred a thousand times with you. I've seen so many pitch decks. There was one I still remember. It's been a few years now. It was a deck, three slides. The first one was something about, you know, we are an 
AI NLP company, um, you know, to help empower your bottom line. And then the second slide was the picture of three white male founders that said they are the um, alumni of a certain Ivy League school in the Bay Area. <clears throat> and then the third slide is Fundus. I'm like, excuse me. So first of all, I have absolutely no idea what you do other than a bunch of buzzwords and jumbo. And the second of all, what, why does it matter that all three of you went to the same brilliant school? That doesn't tell me anything, right? Like to your point, it doesn't tell me what they did. There was absolutely no, they didn't even try to make an effort to tell me what it is that they're trying to do. It's just like, hey, we're from this school. Come, give us money. And, and it was just, absolutely blocks but besides that and and I I agree we need we need a whole lot more we need a whole lot more than just throwing money we we need to be open we need to help you guys be brilliant because there are a whole lot of things and a whole lot of potentials and I will add to it these are not French opportunities this is absolutely not French same as founders who are trying to build solutions for you know, ethnic minority groups, same as founders who are trying to build solutions for older adults. These are not French. These are absolutely needed. This is a market and there's a big market to be had. As to what you walked in your shoes, in your very privileged shoes. Um, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I, I wake up and start reading the news and fintech stuff will pop up and it's like, okay, hey, this neobank founded by two or five or 17 white men um, just got $45 million in funding. And I'm like, we just spent six months trying to get, you know, something like an investment for one or two of the startups that we, you know, work with and advise. And it's like, okay, what's the difference? The color of your skin, you know, your gender, you know, your preference or, you know, and it's like, come on. So, so venture, you know, they really need to look at themselves, hire differently to your point, and really, you know, put people in position of power in order to make decisions about what they fund. Because I'm sorry, because, you know, if, if someone gave you a $10 million check and said, go, and, and said, you know, we're going to give that other startup, you know, 10 million less instead of the 75 million we're giving, or 100 million, these rounds are ridiculous. Think about the good that we can do in banking. If venture and corporate venture, especially, like what you saw in Visa, believed in more of these ideas. So again, I love this idea of let us be brilliant because I think you are going to have success and you are going to be a beacon of light for many others to take inspiration from. So given, given that, um, let's talk about that next step into the next year. You just launched. You're just starting to learn from customers. Can you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for the next year? And everybody go to joindaylight.com and learn more and figure out ways that you can work with Billy and her team. So let's let's talk about that. What do you want to see in the next year for Daylight? So I think the, the next challenge for us is getting really, really solid, solid product market fit. Um, we are spending the next six months with a very you know, uh, boxed off group of customers. Uh, we're capping it at 500 and, and really making sure that we are testing, trying out new things. Um, we're all trying to, you know, beat our own mental models as well. Um, I think it's, 
you know, I've worked in fintech most of my career, but, you know, I'm not necessarily um, intimately uh, knowledgeable about how banks are, you know, run traditionally, which is why we have an amazing uh, sponsor bank and banking team. Um, but I think that kind of gives me an edge because I can sort of say, well, why is why are things being done that way? Um, what if we did it this way? Because this kind of makes more sense to me. Um, and so that's a kind of our next six months challenge is, is building something that delights customers and that customers love um, in a sustainable and re replicable way um, as well. Um, it's it's really going to be an amazing experimental phase for us. And it's I'm so excited to, to get started with it. Um, and, to, you know, even I was saying to Theo yesterday, I was building bots uh, with Intercom and trying out, you know, different ways of nudging people and using behavioral science and uh, being able to really let my kind of queer flag fly as well. You know, that's something that we've all, um, something we've all realized in the team is that, you know, we've, we've all gotten to where we are because, um, we have downplayed our LGBT identity, um, you know, when we're in other corporate environments and we're all having to get comfortable with being queer and, uh, you know, and letting that feed our work in a really positive way. Um, you know, I put a Mariah Carey gif at the end of one of our support uh, bots because why not? Like, you know, why does why does the banking experience have to be so serious? Why can't it do a, a little nudge towards, you know, a community that idolize someone like that? Um, so that's really the next six months for us. Um, and then the rest of the year is going to just be about growing um, and and, you know, continuing to do what we love and um, starting to think about what what are the kind of big pie in the sky projects that we want uh, to build? Because um, we've got kind of all of the core stuff uh, really solid and we will learn a lot over the next six months. And so what are the what are the big dreams that we can that we can have? You know, I'm thinking about ways that we can use the uh, sort of top uh, income bracket of the LGBT community to empower the lower income bracket of the LGBT community? What are ways that we can almost gamify um, community giving? Um, what can we learn from existing uh, community processes? You know, the LGBT community has existed for uh, centuries, but, you know, uh, especially in America uh, for, for decades and does a lot of, you know, very innovative things like mutual aid and mentorship and support that just kind of happens uh, based on your geography and uh, the connections you have to the community. So how can we take some of those learnings from the community and centralize it in our app and build technology around it to support it? Um, yeah, there's a lot of Rob and I um, at least once a week spend a couple of hours on the phone just sort of throwing ideas around. And it's it's the most inspiring uh, couple of hours that I can spend because both of us are able to be simultaneously pragmatic and dreamers. And I think that the sky is really the limit because we are in control of this ship. and We can build anything that we want, ultimately, um, which can be daunting, but um, I am very excited by the sky is the limit, indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on thank the you show for today, me. Billy. And for everyone, thank you so much for listening in. And don't forget to go follow them and support them. Join Daylight, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you so much.